Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just, you forgot to enter. Whoa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. This is Connor Hallway of the Golden Hours Podcast, and this is a GDP Minute. Here I am, 26 years old, fresh beard, running episodes in Los Angeles. I giggled a little bit during this episode. I was like, wow, I'm really out here doing this. This is wild. Anyway, guys, I just ran an episode with Aton Cohen. And I'm going to tell you why this episode is important for a few reasons. I told you guys my goal is I just want to meet everyone I can in the entertainment world, film, TV world as possible and just see what I can what I can come up with and get in the mix with early on. I know what my long-term goals are. If you rewind some of the podcasts, I've said them pretty blatantly. But, you know, for the first year to two years, I just want to get in the mix and meet as many people as possible. So it's important getting people in the industry who are well-respected just so I can meet more people. And Aton, not only is he just a really well-respected screenwriter. He was also just a really nice dude, friendly dude, and I really enjoyed the podcast. It's also important, I got to make all these agents trust me because agents, in my experience, have been very hard to deal with managers just because they slow the process down of getting stuff done and making meetings happen. But essentially, that's their job. They're there to protect their clients. And so I really enjoyed it. Aton, I think, really enjoyed it. And he's just a, he was a good guy, dude. Showed up and up patch jersey and obviously i would have liked to do it in person at a studio but really nice dude he talked a lot about his boston beginnings he talked about writing the bad guys which i actually really recommend you guys go see really enjoyed it um and you know it's a kid's movie but i really liked it and uh other than that man great dude looking forward to meeting him in person hopefully soon and i'm hustling out here man i'm in the snake pit trying to make it happen i hope you guys are doing well if you like the episode, just shoot me a DM. All love, brother. Enjoy. Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait. Was that not it? Hey, enter. Just, you forgot to enter. Hi. My name is Aton Cohen, and this is my golden hour. And just like that, we're caught in the simulation. And I consider myself to be kind of a marketing guy. Okay. But your first impression was bar none i gotta make this a friendly court (laughs) are you a big brady fan um you know um until but i I was i was psyched to go um a great brady moment is i got to go see his last game as a as a patriot beat the rams which was a, a special moment yeah what a game that was and um i mean you grew up in sharon right sharon yeah so um Mostly shot a little bit in Auburndale, and then okay. I went to high school in Brookline, and then uh, mostly Sharon, which I'm surprised you've heard of Sharon because no one ever has. I went to one party there once. It was actually like the first time I ever drank vodka in my life was in Sharon. You're welcome. But like the rumor when I was growing up, I don't think it's true, was that Remy lived in Sharon? Jerry Remy? Yeah. I don't I, think it was I, actually I, true, but it was like a, it's like a point of pride. Sharon's finest, Jerry <laughs> Remy, <right>. Rem Dog. <laughs> now, um, in Brookline, did you go to an ISL school? I went to Maimonides. Do you know that one? I don't. Like a, it's like a small 
uh, Orthodox Jewish high school, like 34 kids in my graduating class. Oh my God, what was that like? It could be claustrophobic, but it was also, you know, it, was, it could also be really fun. And I didn't know this when I was going there, but apparently Conan O'Brien grew up on that street. So there was a lot of Boston comedy going on there. It's in a non-sexual way, the Boston entertainers and writers. And, preface. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to use the word incestuous and I didn't want it to. I just mean like there's a lot of crossover between Boston entertainers. Like I had Lee Eisenberg, the the writer for uh, We Crashed On in The Office. Yeah, and no, he was. T- yeah, I think he's probably represented by the same people. And um, and yeah, he was just saying there was like 15 people in The Office that were from the greater Boston area. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. I don't know what it is about Boston, the, the pain or whatever. <laughs> it's the mania. <laughs> now, so you grew up in Sharon, go to high school in Brookline. And along this time, are you always thinking like, hey, I kind of want to get into screenwriting? You know, um, it was more like it didn't even occur to me growing up in Boston that that could be a job. You know, like I was a, a comedy fan. And I loved all that, um, but it just like wasn't even a job that anyone I knew did, or it ever even occurred to me that that's something you could grow up and do. Um, but I used, to, but I was a comedy fan. I used to like buy the Harvard Lampoon just as a fan, just as like you'd buy a Mad Magazine. And even then, I was like, oh, I could go write for this magazine. But still, it. Didn't, and I mean, I don't know about you, but it just it was never. I don't know anyone who did it. It never occurred to me that you leave Boston, you go to LA, and you could do something like this because it felt to me like people that, that just fell off the moon. And so did you make your first move to LA or did you go to New York first? Um, well, okay. So what I did was I had, um, I think after freshman year, I had a, like an internship at MTV. And cool. so that was kind of a start in New York and it was sort of, a, a, you know, like everyone has their own path. You know, part of the frustration of this job is that there's no like set job you apply for and a set way that you go get one of these jobs. And so I had a really weird sort of backdoor to it, which was when I was working at MTV, it was when um, Beavis and Butthead was on the air, you know, on MTV. Okay. Yeah. So a guy came around who was like a writer or claimed to be a writer on Beavis. And I think he was mostly coming around to sort of hit on the female interns and sort of show off like I'm a writer for Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> and later when I actually got to work for Beavis and Butthead, I think none of that was true. But like I was nowhere near as street smart as the other interns. So I totally believed him. And he was like, yeah, if you got an idea for an episode, just call. And I had no idea that you don't do that. So like my ignorance was a great benefit because I just absolutely called them. I was like, hey, I've got ideas for your show. And there was a guy running it named Chris Brown. And he was just like the nicest guy. And he was like, sure, if you, you know, if you send us ideas that maybe we could buy one of them. And so I started sending him just like hundreds of ideas. And he, you know, we became really good friends later. And he told me just the stuff you sent me at first was terrible. And, but he liked that I just kept coming back and kept coming back. And finally, out of pity, he said, all right, we'll buy one of your ideas. And I think they paid a hundred dollars for the ideas. And then we'll let one of our real writers write it. And then he took such pity on me that he was like, okay, we'll let you write the script and we'll see how it goes. And that went well. So it was cool. How old are you at this point? 19. Okay. So you were in the game early. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just because, you know, like Boston, you don't even know how it works. You don't even know that's not how it should work. And so it was like, that was my college job was writing for Beavis. 
And to get like $400 a script when you're in college, it's like more money than God, you know? So like, like my now wife, like I could take her to dinner, you know? So I was like Midas. And then, so because I did that, I was like, well, after I graduate, I might as well go give it a shot, you know, um, and see what happens. And I was kind of like, well, if I fail, I can always go to law school, <laughs> whatever, get a normal job. Um, and so I came out, um, Mike Judge was just starting um, King of the Hill then. Okay. But they didn't, like I got rejected off of that. So I went and I did some like kids animation. Like I don't know if you remember those shows like Recess and like Timon. Of course, I loved Recess. Okay, cool. So I wrote for Recess a little bit. And then after a year of doing that, I got a job on a show um, called, um, it's like, you know, which lasted like half a season. And it's called what? Uh, it was called It's Like You Know. And it was a lot it, of like post Seinfeld writers, which was really cool. Um, sounds like a tough movie to market, excuse me, show. It's uh, Like You Know. It was like very LA. Okay. You know, I was sort of living in LA. It was like Seinfeld in LA kind of, but it didn't last. And so then I was unemployed for a while. And at that point, they were hiring new writers for King of the Hill. So I got to go into King of the Hill. And um, then what was great about that was. Mike Judge said, well, I remember you wrote some of the more offensive episodes of Beavis and Butthead. So I got this idea for this movie, Idiocracy, and maybe you could come help me with that. So it was just a great, you know, random path. And then because I was doing Idiocracy with him, I think that led to Ben Stiller seeing that movie. Um, I got maybe he knew Mike and then said, I've got this idea for this movie, Tropic Thunder. And I got to do that with him. And that led to because he had a part in i gotta cut you off i, I apologize oh, it, it's my it's my favorite movie of all time tropic thunder oh, i you know it's that's so nice to hear it's uh, i mean it it's funnier every time i see it i totally mean that like some of the quips are so funny the characters are so identifiable did you write the robert downey character well i mean you Okay, so the Robert Downey Jr. character, um, which would never pass today, <laughs> no way. <laughs> crazy. Like um, my kids, they're now like, you should be canceled. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't let them watch it. So much of my stuff, I won't let them watch it. Um, but I remember, like, you know, I remember um, walking around the LA Reservoir with Stuart Cornfeld, who unfortunately has passed away, and he was Ben's producer, and just thinking, like, what's the worst thing that someone could do? You know, just all the, the North Star for that movie was just, what is the worst thing people could do? And then um, uh, just was like, oh, of course, it's like black face on top of white face on top of this. And so that was just, that's where that came from. Just all that was just, what's the worst? I think Idiocracy, a lot of the stuff I do is just, what's the worst thing people could do? I think my favorite part of that movie, and this is like early Danny McBride, I think, I don't know if Eastbound and Down was out already, but... It was when he was like, go, 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 go. And, and then he just sends the things. and It, it was just a, a hilarious moment. Oh, right on. Now, when you, so when you were developing, well, so peel back to recess. Did you do the movie as well? No, no, no. I just, so I had a, um, a job that I don't think exists anymore, which was, I was sort of a staff writer for Disney TV animation. So I was kind of like on salary there and they would just sort of, you could go write an episode of Recess, Pepper Ann, I think was one of the shows. And so it was a lot of those like kids kind of Saturday morning shows. And I just had a job there and they would just kind of, whatever they needed a script for, they would sort of send me to do. Now, in that brief period you were unemployed, were you freaking out? Were you like, all right, it's time to go back to Boston or? 
Oh, I mean, freaking out. You know, I mean, uh, I was newly married, and oh. you know, all of a sudden we had no money and no money coming. I mean, it's it's the story of uh, of trying to make it out here, and we were starting to we're like, well, we can't afford our apartment anymore, and we got to like start looking for. We just didn't know what we were gonna do. You know, um, I think it's the panic a lot of us have, and um, and then sort of just thank God in the middle of that. This King of the Hill job came on, and so you know, thank God that was a that was a show that lasted for a while. And I didn't realize at the time that that was such a luxury that you have a show that's actually getting picked up year to year. Um, so uh, that that was sort of saved me, you know. And then, but then it's like you never. I mean, I know you've experienced this too. Like you can never tell. Okay, um, okay, now I got a job. Oh my God, there's a writer strike. You know what I mean? Oh, it's man. Like, I... Hey, I'm not working for a year. You know, you just like, it's like always the it's thing that you never anticipate that comes and screws you, you know? How did you walk into that meeting with no job when you were applying for King of the Hill and not act panicked? Because people are always like, you know, in LA, just you can't act like you're too desperate and you don't want it that bad. Yeah. I don't know. I guess you just act that way first and hopefully you're like your mind catches up kind of. I mean, it was sort of a funny, so I don't think people have been doing this somewhere like write spec scripts to get jobs. I certainly have never done that. Yeah, I mean, it's cool now because like people have the means of production. Like you can go make a short, you can go make a movie and show that to people and you don't have to. So like, I know this is like, makes me a dinosaur, but you know, if like you were applying for a, for a job, you know, you write a sample script and of an existing show and hopefully it's good enough. And weirdly, I wrote a King of the Hill spec you're sort of supposed to never do that for the show you're applying to. So I think I kind of went in the room, maybe okay, because first of all, I knew Mike, which helped. And then they sort of saw that and they saw, okay, you can write a script for our show because you've already done it. So that really helped. I mean, but yeah, I'm, I'm sure I was panicked. Now, how old were you during this unemployment period? Um, I, was, I was pretty young. I mean, I was probably 25. Okay. Like that, because I came out here. It was like 23, 24 is right after graduation. And then, um, yeah, something like that. But you know how it is. You think you're never going to work again. Well, I've been learning slowly. I forget the guy's name who did Manchester by the Sea, but I've been learning that like bet writers between their projects that actually get produced and made, it could be like a five, six year gap. And so how writers like make money in between that time is like really interesting to me. Like, did you ever pick up like a professor job or anything like that? No, I mean, I think part of it to me was always try to stay overemployed. You know? Yeah. <laughs> try to be writing um, features, try to be doing three, four things at the same time. <laughs> so there's so much like attrition. So hopefully one of those things goes. You know. Yeah, that, that's what Jerry, I, I listened to like probably pretty much every Jerry Bruckheimer interview ever. Yeah. And he's like, you got to have like nine spinning plates at once. Totally true. Totally true. Because then something, it's like, it's not always your fault. You know what I mean? Like you can write a good script and then, the, you know, and then the president of the studio gets fired, you know, and then the new mm -hmm. person comes in and they're like cleaning house of everything that old administration did. And suddenly your project is just in a drawer, even though you know, the old, I mean, even though maybe the old people thought it was great and you put a year or two years into it. Now with the advent of like a YouTube or just how you can self-distribute content now, now that that's an option for you, are there any like ideas that you're like, yeah, I would like to just make this myself, even if it never gets greenlit? 
Um, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I'll, t- I'll talk about one thing now, which I can't really, okay. Well, there's, a, there's like a mockumentary I'm trying to make right now. And it's the kind of thing that, is, you know, most studios will look at that and say like, that's never gonna make any money. And so I'm trying to raise money for it myself, just going to like independent finance. In fact, I have a pitch <laughs> like after this in a couple hours that nice. gotta go do that. And, you know, it, it's, and this is something I'm doing with Mike Judge. And for years we've been trying to make it and it's so hard to, to, to land it somewhere that actually make it at some point we're just like, fuck it, we should just pay for it ourselves. You know, you get so frustrated, um, which, there's only like, I mean, it's only something you can do because it's super low budget, but yeah, I mean, it's, it can drive you crazy. Have you so tweaked I, yeah. some of the screenplay to make it more budget friendly? Um, I think that's going to be part of the process. You know, you go in and you say like, okay, well, this much money. And they say, okay, we'll give you this much money. And then, so they're right. You know, there's all kinds of tricks you can do. Um, maybe um, you're going to shoot it on your, you're going to, you know, you're going to say, okay, this is home video footage. You're going to shoot it on your phone. Or you have a you know scene that takes place at a baseball game, and you're not going to show that. You maybe you're going to use stock footage, you know, or you're going to shoot like this much of the stand, so you only need 20 people or something like that. And so there's tricks that you can do. And even when you're making a feature, like um, when I did Get Hard, that's you know be, besides uh, Will and Kevin, that's a, was really low, but relatively low budget movie when it was left over, and you learn all the, the tricks, you know, of using you know you can use one location to shoot all these different things. Um, so, you, you know, you start to learn that stuff in production. I'm sure you, when you're trying to make your own movie, you probably have to figure that out too. Yeah, that's, I've just kind of been directing through discipline for a long time, just because in Boston, no one directs and like, it's not a thing. But I, I kind of learned through the process. I really like producing. I feel like I'm the only guy out here who actually like enjoys to produce. Like, Producer I like the entrepreneur. I like pulling the team together for like, so let's say like you sent me the mockumentary. I like trying to get like all the best people in the right roles and then bring the best out of them on set. Yeah. But the details with the finances, that's not really my thing. <laughs> I know. And I don't know what you, so it's funny because you go into these pitches and it's like, well, how much is it going to cost? And it's not like I'm, you know, trying to bullshit, but like, you know, you do the best you can, but you don't really know. Right. You, you, you try to make a legitimate good faith guess, but it's so you just to, say one billion. Exactly. <laughs> well, suddenly you, as you go to every meeting, you're like, okay, it's not going to be that. It's not going to be that. It's not going to be that. And then eventually, and you sort of pitching certain actors and you have to say in the meeting, I know we can't afford that guy, but you know, someone who looks like him. Kind of. I know I've been thinking so much about Avatar too. And like, I know the budget was outlandish for those three, two, three, and four. And I'm like, what were those pitch meetings? Like they were probably yeah. crazy. I think you have to make movies that make a billion dollars and then you can do it. Yeah, I know. Um, so when you developed uh, the bad guys, that was a, an existing IP from Scholastic, correct? Right. Um, so this guy, Aaron Blavy, who's an Australian author, he wrote, he has you know, a series of kids books, mm-hmm. uh, which my kids were kind of not in that demographic. So I didn't really know them that well. Um, but the funny thing was, so we were talking about Tropic Thunder before. He was a Tropic Thunder fan. And so he kind of said, maybe you can get the guy who wrote Tropic Thunder to come do this because the, I mean, you saw the movie, so it's a little bit meta in terms of it's sort of aware that it's in a movie and we have scenes that are aware they're in a movie and referencing movies. Break the fourth wall. A little bit, yeah, exactly. So it was in that vein, it's you know a little bit that for kids. Um, so that was an existing IP. And I came into, you know, they sort of, you know, 
kind of met with me, you know, wanted me to do the movie. And I mean, initially, you know, I looked at the IP and it's, it's kids books and it doesn't, it's, you know what I mean? It's like a, a book is, especially a series of books is a whole different uh, structure than a movie, which has to arc over 90 minutes as opposed to 20 books. So that the challenge there was to go in and figure out like, okay, we can figure out emotional arcs for these characters across one episode, as opposed to, you know, 20 books. And that was the kind of challenge there. So um, once I kind of figure out, okay, this is a theme here about don't judge a book by its cover and we can play that in a movie, then it started to come together and feel like a movie and not like an episodic, you know, series of kids books. So you would have preferred writing process wise that maybe you like, it would be easier for you to write a Harry Potter movie as opposed to like a, a children's series. Is that kind of right? Or no, no, I'm just saying a book has a different structure than a movie. And what, I know, but what I'm saying is like challenge wise, is that a huge challenge that you have to somehow pull a story oh, out of 15 books as opposed to like one standalone novel? Um, I, I don't know. It's just different. I don't know if one's harder than the other. Everything's hard. <laughs> you know how it is. Um, so I don't think like one's harder than the other. I think it's fun when you have existing characters and you sort of know what their voice is a little bit. And, you know, can you, you know what you're dealing with? I mean, it's an extra challenge when you're writing something original and you're coming with all the characters as opposed to when, okay, I know this guy, I can write to his voice, which is kind of fun in its own way. I just, I don't know if this was the name of the character in the actual book. I just thought the name like Mrs. Foxington was hilarious. I was laughing out loud in the... <laughs> she actually didn't exist. Um, and that was a funny challenge because um, this is the opposite of getting canceled. You know, they, um, the, the, the books are all male. This group is all male. So like the character Tarantula was male. And this other character, and I, I sort of, you know, having kids, I was like, well, we should maybe try to balance that out a little bit to appeal to the whole audience. So she became a new character. And then, you know, we wanted her also to be cool and have agency and be a strong character. So then she became who she was and we made her into the spoiler, you know, the Crimson Paw who was super cool. And that was a matter of like, uh, you know what I mean? Just kind of making the into a movie where it was, wasn't just mostly directed at boys, you know, who are learning to read, but uh, like a big audience and a family audience. So you had to kind of be aware of that too, you know? Now, yeah, like I, I really enjoyed the movie and um, truthfully from a production end, I really enjoyed it too. I don't know if you would know this because you're a writer, but on the production end of things, the animation seemed almost like it was at a different frame rate than most animations that are created today. Like if you were to go see a Pixar, the movement is very fluid. It was much more tactile with a lot of the characters. Was that like a conscious decision or was it just like a new style of animation they wanted to employ? Well, I think it was a matter of, you know, movies had, it's, you know, people I think sort of started to rebound and kind of course correct from the super, you know, 3D computer kind of animation, wanted something that looked a little more warm, a little more organic. And, you know, Spider-Verse had come out, which was sort of more aware of the kind of old fashioned animation. And, and you know, going in the sort of animation team <laughs> wanted to do something like that that was sort of a different direction for DreamWorks and sort of pick up on what, what other studios were trying to do. So there was, you know, and honestly, I can't answer to the sort of technical side of it, but it was definitely, definitely like a conscious like um, effort to, to bring it that way. And being an executive producer is not like being a, you know, producer, producer. And in fact, executive producer is like one of those meaningless like job titles in, in movies because it can mean anything. 
but it was great to stay on as an executive producer. So after the writing was done, I got to hang around and sort of be part of that process too, which normally you wouldn't really get to do if you were just the writer. You know? Executive producer is great to say on a first date. <laughs> yeah, and I do. Every time I meet someone, I say, hello, executive producer, Rebecca. <laughs> yeah. Watch the sparks fly. Uh, hey, man, if you want to say you're the executive producer on my movie, it's going to get you in some doors. Go for it, man. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, it, doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything. So I could totally be the executive producer. I know. I had a meeting with a guy last night. He was like, hey, dude, I'll do anything for that EP credit. I was like, all right, man, anything? <laughs> okay. But it's um, so funny. Like, it's, it looks, you know, like when you're, when, you're, when you're not doing it yet and you see executive producer, it's like, oh, wow, executive producer. But then when you realize it's like, okay, the... The author's agent is an executive producer just because he's an executive producer. <laughs> it's kind of a, it's an all, all, you know, all job, job. Now, in the movie, I thought, this is from my honest standpoint, I thought you just did a really good job making it very relevant. And I wonder, you know, and that it was like that with the first Spider-Man, I felt the like one with Tom Holland and Jake Gyllenhaal, it seemed like the ideas were like when you were writing a year ahead of their time. So when the movie actually came out, the ideas were super relevant. Like he was talking about simulation and metaverse and all this shit in the first Spider-Man. I thought you did a very similar approach with this movie. How did, how do you make a calculated decision like that in your writing? Like, okay, you know, in a year, that's probably still going to work. I mean, I definitely did. Okay. And I, I also think like if you're trying to come out with a message, it makes for really bad writing, you know? So, yeah, I mean, so, that's fine. Someone just asked me like, you know, like how do your values become part of the characters you write or like the ideas you want to get out there become? And I, and I think it's, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's almost not intentional. Like, you know, when you're writing and you sort of say like what makes a hero or makes a villain, you kind of can't help but put your own values into it, what you think makes a good person, what you think makes a bad person. So in writing the movie, it was just about well, what's a good idea or what's a nice thing to, you know what I mean? Not on, not on purpose to sort of hit people over the head with it, but just something that spoke to me. And then it, for better or worse, it happened to, things happened to catch up with it. Now, what was like writing this in like the release? Like, what's it been like for you? Has it been exciting? I mean, it's not like a Tropic Thunder, like a huge blockbuster movie. It's a kid's movie, but are, yeah. do you still like, are you feeling stimulated by the release? And Oh, for sure. I mean, especially, you know, this animated movie it was literally four and a half years of work. So oh my it's God. so fun, to, right? It's so fun to finally have it out there and people seeing it and people enjoying it. So it's in a funny way, it's a little bit anticlimactic you've been waiting for it for four and a half years and it came out it's like oh it came out <laughs> you know on to the next thing um but it's great uh it's really a lot of fun it, it's it is different um i think just the economics of these things are different you know it's a hit and it was number one two weeks in a row but in the same like by the same token that that box office would have been like a catastrophe you know you know you know when these anime movies came out and they made a hundred million dollars in their first weekend and that you know like the madagascar movies you know they were like that kung fu panda movies were like that but now that's just not what the economics are anymore so it, it's a, it's definitely a different feeling it, it's still satisfying to get it out there and have critics like it have people like it have it be the movie you know have people get it out of their house even though it's covid and go see it um but it's for sure different 
are you like a purist when it comes to the writing? Like, are you like, you know, I only write for the screen or like in the back of your mind? I mean, this was four years ago, so streaming wasn't as prevalent, but were you like, I would like this to like look nice and be adapted nice for an HBO or a Netflix? Not at all. In fact, the opposite. I just, um, it's sort of more recent things where people are like, you know, even big Disney and Pixar movies are, are going right to streaming. Um, and it didn't even occur to me until, you know, you have, um, before the movie comes out, uh, you know, they have test screenings and you go and you see the audience, you know, you get a bunch of audience that come for free to get free, you give them free snacks. And then um, and often they <laughs> record the audience while they're watching the movie to see where people are laughing, where people are getting bored. And then afterwards they do a focus group and they ask the, like the people who just watched all kinds of questions, you know, what you like, what you didn't like, you know, would you recommend it, not recommend it? And then for the first time, I heard the guy who was running the focus group ask the question, did you pay to go see this in a theater or did you just watch it on streaming? That was like the most terrifying thing I'd ever heard because it didn't even occur to me that you put in all this work and that doesn't come out in, in theaters. But that's like the brave new world of, of writing these things. It was the opposite, you know. Can I make a, a quick assumption without you being pissed? <laughs> uh, okay, <laughs> that's a loaded question. How's this? I'll flip it. Would you be opposed if I made an assumption? Not at all. Do you like to read? Love to read. <laughs> I can tell, <laughs> man. Is that is that the offensive question? I I just didn't want to offend you, man. I didn't I didn't know if I was making an assumption. Now, if you were at, like in my position, just made a movie, coming out to Los Angeles, yeah. want to produce, want to get involved in as many projects, what would you you're read? In LA, you're in LA Sorry. I'm, I'm in oh, Culver City, here. brother. Oh, wow. You mean like screenwriting books and, and stuff like that? Just what's helped you? Oh, boy. I mean, I think what really helps is reading a lot of scripts of movies you like, you know, and see how they do it and what works for them. I mean, there's a lot of those, you know, basic, I mean, this is not, it's not for, like if someone just who'd never done it before and just said like, what's a book I should read? I might say like, oh, the Save the Cat book because it's so mm -hmm. digestible and, you know, it's easier to read and sort of gives you an idea of the basic structure. Like, I don't think you should make your movie based on what you read in Save the Cat, but it gives you like a nice sort of basis. Really, yeah, just a real lay of the land. But I think it's really been reading scripts and honestly just watching movies. It's not always, you know, reading scripts, but just going watching movies as many as you can and, and seeing what they do. Do you have a favorite Boston movie? Ooh. Besides Apple uh, Cinema, which I'll email you after this, my film. Yeah. What's a, what counts as a Boston movie? Irish Mob, Crooked Cop, yeah. Red oh, Sox. Uh, <laughs> um, yes, the documentary about the 2004 uh, World Series. <laughs> I forgot about that documentary. What was that called again? I don't know. I probably have it behind me somewhere. In, I, yeah, Kurt Schilling was on the cover, I think. Could be. I, I don't remember, but all I do remember about that movie is it's all about the Yankees series, and then you get to sing with since like five minutes. <laughs> like no one cared. Like the real world series was the Yankees. What a crazy series that was. Were you in LA for that? No, no, no. I, uh, no, actually, I was. Um, and my family, we all met in St. Louis. Um, oh, wow. That was pretty cool. I got to see game three, which was Pedro's last game on the Red Sox so that that felt like a cool uh, piece of history but yeah 
uh, you know how it is like my grandfather and great-grandfather died waiting for that (laughs) that world series the curse the bambino seriously and then it was like our lives like what what what's the purpose of our lives now (laughs) yeah everyone's having an existential crisis like we can't be pissed anymore this is crazy and what does it mean to be from boston if you're not angry all the time about the red Sox? yeah i had the red Sox cmo on the podcast and he was just like an intern at that time in 2004. And he was like, even being part of the team was just like this crazy, it felt like a Disney movie, he said. Oh, yeah. And it was like out here, it was weird because like any Red Sox, like I remember walking down the street, just like in a Red Sox shirt and some guy just pulled over and he was like, this is the year. <laughs> it was like brotherhood, like anyone you saw were like a family. That's not really true anymore, but it was like, it was a moment. Just grab you. He's like, I fucking love you, man. <laughs> Brother, <laughs> hilarious. Um, are you a Celtics guy too, or? I definitely. I mean, as a kid, and like, you know, turning off the sound on the TV and putting Johnny Most on the radio, like, on top of the TV. Uh, that was, you know, Larry Bird. Those are my years. Uh, are you following it this year at all? Honestly, not. No. You're busy. I understand. No, but I mean, honestly, like my emotional connections to the Red Sox more than anything else. Yeah. What, how about you do you like, and then you come out here and you've got to pick a team kind of to, you know I mean, so you can go to a game here and care about it. Um, I haven't, I've, I've been here for, this is like my 11th day. So, <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I'm, I like no, but I mean, I can tell there's a lot of bandwagon fans out here. <laughs> I just, you gotta go, it'll never be the same, but you gotta go and pretend to be a Dodgers fan. I did go to I did go to a meeting at Dodger Stadium and um, I will say it's a really cool stadium it's just like this it's like kind of in on top of this hill in this like little neighborhood yeah it's amazing Um, it's like one it's amazing how now it's like one of the oldest parks right it must be I mean I pose I mean Fenway and Wrigley right and then probably Dodger Stadium yeah it's from the 50s right yes I mean now that's old I guess I saw I drew so I drove out here from Boston and um I stopped at Wrigley's really cool park you ever been over there uh-uh. Chicago's not that cool of a city though <laughs> just freezing I mean I think I don't how old are your kids um I've actually got so I have um twin 18 year olds who are leaving home to go to college this year and a 14 year old okay so you're past like father-son bonding time era not at all we go to games all the time. I and I took him. I took him to Game Five to see the Red Sox beat the Dodgers. Oh, really? It's like a great formative, <laughs> great formative experience. Now I've raised them all Red Sox fans. They're not allowed to root for anything else. Okay, nice word. That's great. I mean, yeah, I I've heard a lot of people are like, I only like this team because my dad likes this team, and so that's how a lot of people are raised. Where your your parents were big fans too. Yeah, yeah. I always went to games with my dad, and like, yeah. It was, yeah, it's like such an emotional, I, I uh, t- funny, I took, I took my brother, my little brother, the first day the green monster was introduced and it was like kids day at Fenway. When was this? Probably early, mid nineties. Okay. I say, and it was so funny because it was such a Fenway moment. Like they bring, they bring, <laughs> they bring out the green monster and it's like kids day at Fenway. So it's like all kids. And of course, they bring in all the fans are like, sit the fuck down. Like, get the <laughs> fuck out of the field. <laughs> like, my brother's like cowering. 
they weren't ready for a mascot. <laughs> He's got crazy PTSD. Oh man. Wow. So it was mid nineties. Yeah. Before that, there were no seats up there, right? Oh no, not the green monster seats. I mean, the Oh, you mean the mascot? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I, th- I thought you meant they were unveiled at the same time, the seats no, 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 and the mascot. Later, I've never, I've never sat there. But I think that was a, that was a bunch of years later. Well, they add to the park every year. I guess so. Yeah, I, I, it's sad. I haven't been able to go to a game in a long time. But yeah, have any of the films that you've worked on been shot or produced in Boston? No, no. Because you know they bring like four or five big budget productions every year. Do they? Do they still have like a tax credit? Yeah, they do. Yep. Um, no, I mean, I'd love to. Well, you, you'll have to do, you'll have to do your independent mockumentary over there. For sure. Look, I've got I've got the main character have, has a works at BU, so I'm trying to I'm trying to push us that way. Nice. Is he a professor? He is a professor. Okay, cool. I'm starting to kind of connect the dots here. <laughs> connect those dots. Um, okay, I have. I had two more questions, man. Thank you so much. I've had a really good time. I appreciate it. All okay. right. Yeah. Um, okay. The, uh, this was one of my questions. Like, what was it like producing comedy in the Tropic Thunder era as opposed to now? Because that was like, when I look back, that was like when the when Ben Stiller and Adam Sandler and Will Ferrell were all dropping those huge comedies, like for like that eight, 10 year stretch. And I mean, you were really in the mix. What's it like compared to now? I think, I mean, wow. I mean, I think it feels like the era of the big budget comedy is over. You know what I mean? People aren't willing, people will spend all that money on, you know, a sequel, like a big IP, like a Harry Potter, like a Marvel movie. But I'm trying, I can't even think of the last huge budget comedy. I mean, Tropic Thunder must have cost over $100 million. You know? uh, I mean, The Rock and Kevin Hart have some pretty big comedies, but yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Um, yeah, it just doesn't, I mean, if you're talking about making a comedy or pitching a comedy, you're not talking about, you know, it's something you can make for, what, 30, 40? which I know is still a lot of money, but nothing compared to the old days. But what was that like for you as a writer? Like, if I mean, I'm sure, go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, um, which the ideas that you're thinking about are not these huge world building ideas. There's, you know what I mean? They're, you're sort of, like I hate it, you know, that we're in comedy, you hate to be self-editing, right? Because Comedy should be all about, you know, just sort of letting it flow and not having, not censoring yourself at all. But I think sometimes, I can't think of something specific, but an idea that you might've had that is like, okay, this is gonna be a 50, 60, $70 million movie. You might, you know, I might say like, it have, have an idea that I throw out to my agent or manager and they're saying, okay, but there might not be a market for that, you know? Um, so maybe a series, right? Yeah, well, and that's actually, that's a really good point because now a lot of those things are becoming serious, um, which is really cool. Like, you know, um, now a lot of the great stars and and there's actually like the, I mean, the budget of something like Game of Thrones or even some of these big like serials are as much as what a movie would have been, right? It's like 10, $15 million an episode and there's a lot of great work in TV. Um, so you're right. Yeah. I mean, I haven't really done a lot of TV lately, but yeah, for sure. 
What do you watch right now? Oh God, I was just watching last, last night and it's not a comedy, but have you seen Under the Banner of Heaven? I haven't, let me write it down. Yeah, it's really cool. It's a true crime series set in um, the world of, of uh, Mormons. Wow, when did that yeah. come out? Just now, it's on right now. Netflix? It's HBO, I think. Yeah. HBO. And my um, one of my daughters um, uh, is a ballerina, so she spent a year living in Salt Lake City, dancing for the company there, and she has very strong feelings about about LDS. And uh, so it was really, and we've been there to visit her, and you know, not like we know the world, but it was it was very interesting to see it now as a series. Yeah, yeah, I drove through there to get out here, that area. Right. Did you spend time there? I actually spent time in southern Utah, which is, looks more like Mars. So Utah's just it, like I really felt like I slept the night in Mars. It was crazy. Um, like it, it looks like Mars. It felt like aliens lived there. And um, but I did, I did get a little taste of the Mormon lifestyle, and that is really interesting. I'm sure it's a really captivating series. Oh yeah, you should check it out. Um... I mean, yeah, there's a lot of interest. I mean, it's it's not the Book of Mormon, which was also amazing. Um, I don't know if you've seen that, but that's something every human should see. Um, but it does like the sort of dramatic version of kind of unpacking the history of the church. Okay, cool. Yeah. I'm going to write it down again. You know, it's funny. I was thinking because, you know, I, I'm, I have a religious background. So I think when I went to college, they put me in a roomy group with a Mormon kid because they thought like, you guys are the crazies. <laughs> So even though you're different religions, you'll get along with each other. And it's true. <laughs> you guys were friends? We were. Yeah. You know, I didn't dig too deep into the uh, history of, uh, of LDS, but they're all where really was different. your, where was your bar mitzvah? Sharon? No, uh, Canton. <laughs> Nothing like classy Canton. <laughs> Canton, you know, where the subway is and the friendlies. Not far from the auto mile. <laughs> try 128 and uh... well hey man thank you so much for your time um i end these episodes with three things okay first thing number one is there anyone you think specifically i should get onto the podcast wow um it's a great question i think to some of your um questions about production and what people are making now in terms of comedy it might be really interesting to get like a producer or a manager sort of cross those worlds i think well, that'd be a really interesting conversation um if, that people don't hear a lot i agree if you know anyone please put me in touch it'd be great you can have that conversation offline love it cool next i'm definitely going to send you a 45 second trailer of my film I think when you see it, you're going to be like, dude, this dude knows what he's doing, producing something, but he has no business writing anything. <laughs> I had to, to finish the screenplay. I had to overdose on Adderall. All right. I'll tell you how much. <laughs> we all should. I mean, it's fun. It's interesting because I think people don't, like when they hear the word producer, they don't realize what a creative job it is. And I, you know, and how much of, a, of like the fabric of a movie it is. And, um, you know, I think um, a lot of times writers come to producing, you know, because it's like a kind of related muscle. 
Um, like there's a woman I work with now who's uh, started as an assistant. She now works with me like as a producer, kind of creative executive. And she came to that through, you know, because she's creative and she came to that through writing. And then you realize like producing is it's a really creative job. Cool. Yeah, I agree. Um, now, finally, this is how I start and end the episodes production wise. You have to say hi, your name. And this is my golden hour directly after no break high your name and that was my golden hour hi okay hi my name and this is my golden hour hi my name and that was my golden hour i think you I got it brother my little cognitive test okay go for it naturally totally friend hi my name is a tim cohen and this is golden hour is that right i got it wrong 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 okay, you gotta say it again hi I just want to know I went to Harvard. <laughs> I know. Not I as dumb as I sound. <laughs> a Harvard guy, a linguist. Hi, my name is Aitan Cohen, and that was my gold now. So, like all right, Aitan, <laughs> let's rewind. This is this is my golden hour. Yeah. Break. That was my golden hour. So I don't say my name. You do say your name. This is like a who's on first that. <laughs> now i'll never be able to do it hi my name is Aitan cohen and this is golden hour hi my name God damn hi i'll be i'll be honest with you like 75 percent of people it takes at least nine tries so you're not doing too bad okay good give me seven more you say it again and i'll repeat it after you hi just do the my name one. my name is Aitan cohen and this is my golden hour Hi, my name is Etan Cohen, and that was my golden hour. Hi, my name is Etan Cohen, and this is my golden hour. Boom. Do I sound like an asshole, though? I think you do a take like that, you sound like an asshole, but I'll do it. I thought, I thought you sounded good. I sound good? Sound professional? Okay. You sound good, man. Okay. Hi, my name is Etan Cohen, and that was my golden hour. Not perfectly executed, but we'll take it, man. No, Good no, work. I'll do it again because I, I can do it now. All right, you got some sauce now. Yeah, put some of that Hollywood sauce on it. Yeah. Hi, my name is... I can't remember my name. Hi, <laughs> my name is Satan Cohen, and that was my gold medal. Boom. I loved it, man. Cool. <laughs> Thank you so much, man. Um, the things you can get self-conscious about. <laughs> <laughs>